Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161BJ114. Discussion of Art and Architecture. From the Easy Chair, excellent colloquies on various subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 222, July the 3rd, 1990. Otto Scott and I are now going to discuss the subject of art, a very important subject because in Western civilization in particular, the closest and most important relationship of art has been to Christianity. On the subject of what has happened in art, there has been a very fine book written uh, the author is Remy G. Sacelin, the title The Bourgeois and the Bibelot, published by Rutgers University Press in 1984. His thesis, which I believe is correct, is an exceptionally important one, because he says art in origin has always been connected with either one of two things, religion or the state. It has had an objective function in society, an important one in the maintenance of social order, either through religion or through politics. But what we have seen in the modern age is something very, very dramatically different. Art, in fact, has, he says, replaced religion. It has been severed from the source of life. It has been divorced from work. And it has become instead a collector's item, a way whereby uh, man uh, shows that he is superior to others through aesthetics. And culture today has become an industry, and art is the new source of class distinction. Hence, you have avant-garde art. You have a continual need for novelty. And if you are up on things, you then avail yourselves of this novelty and you look down at those who do not understand what your, say, Picasso says. So it becomes an aesthetics of distinction, he says, a way of keeping the lower classes in their places. And collecting art in terms of this kind of uh, approach has replaced titles of nobility. Now you are a collector, and thereby you are a man of distinction. So, he says, art has died insofar as, the, as its objective public function is concerned. Well, with that, Otto, would you like to comment on that or anything else? Well, I think the... The author's argument, which is really an argument on the class struggle viewpoint, 
in which he is associating art with a class position. And that's Marxist. They see everything as a reflection of a class struggle to achieve or maintain eminence. And I don't, I don't uh, see it quite that way. I think there are elements of that argument which are valid, which are true. But I don't think really that it could be taken in its entirety. The modern art movement is only about 100, 150 years old. Let's say that it began around the 1850s or 1860s, and it had its zenith, I'd say, it's already past its peak. I was at an auction at the Cowboy Hall of Fame in Oklahoma City, where actually several millions of dollars passed hands on contemporary realistic art, all Western and all beautiful, and not a word about it appeared in any Eastern newspaper or any West Coast newspaper, only in the local press. And all across the country, the abstract expressionist paintings are going without any customers, and traditional art is beginning to come back. But I do agree with him on one area, and that is that there has been a separation between art and religion. And I think that's a very fruitful area to go into. I agree with you that his uh, thesis at points parallels the Marxist analysis. But he recognizes that before about 1850, uh, the class element did not enter into art. It was when art was fully separated from religion and no longer was used by the state. And you had the culture as represented in Paris and uh, Napoleon III, that this kind of thing entered in and it became a means of uh, establishing eminence. The old nobility had never felt that they had to prove anything. The new element around Napoleon III was out to prove they were better than anyone else, better than the old nobility, and they used art for that purpose. So while the thesis parallels the Marxists, there are some very real differences, and I think his basic premise that uh, art historically has had an objective frame of reference. It has to do with the reality of order, political or religious. But it's, it's always been tied in with, with politics and religion. I mean, think of David, the French artist who portrayed the revolutionaries of the French Revolution as uh, noble characters from classical uh, legend. And the church was a great patron of the arts for an awfully long time. Yes. In fact, when the early movies began, uh, I saw a film clip of the Pope, who incidentally didn't seem to be at all as regal as modern popes. He, uh, he looked 
like a village priest of some sort. And he was greatly in favor of the movies in Rome because he thought uh, uh, thought of the movies as a new vehicle to propagate the faith. Mm -hmm. And those great biblical spectacles which D.W. Griffiths produced here were first produced by the Italians. Well, the extent to which art uh, was related to religion came out in a very, very interesting book uh, published in 1983. The author was Leo Steinberg, and the title, quite a striking one, The Sexuality of Christ in Renaissance Art and in Modern Oblivion. And his thesis is that you suddenly began to see in paintings in the late Middle Ages and early Renaissance uh, portraits or pictures of the infant Jesus, naked, showing his sexual organs. And this is a striking departure from what uh, had taken previously. You had uh, pictures of the infant Jesus at his circumcision and so on. And the whole point of it was theological. You could not in those days do a picture in the church uh, unless the clergy approved, unless you had authorities that uh, gave their seal of approval to what you did. And he says that by that time the divinity of Christ needed no demonstration. It had been well established throughout the Middle Ages. But what happened was there was a need to proclaim, and it began with St. Francis of Assisi, the humanness also of Christ, that he was very man of very man as well as very God of very God. Now I know from history that one of the tremendous uh, reasons for the success of St. Francis was that he introduced the crush, the uh, infant Jesus in a manger into churches or into public places. And the response was sensational. And it accounted to a great degree for the success of the Franciscans because what it brought home to people was God was a little baby like us in the person of Jesus Christ. He underwent all our experiences and therefore can understand us. And of course, it culminated in portrayals which showed the sexuality of Christ and had a tremendous impact in the history of the church. Well, art was thus a teaching ministry, a very important one. And uh, there have been books written uh, which have uh, studied the cathedral and church murals and have pointed out how every little detail 
reflected a theological perspective that the church was promoting at the time. Well, yes. The the growth, the growth of art and images in the church all through the ages of faith finally, of course, fell in from being too much of a hype. they had too many pieces of the true cross. They had too many. Yes. They had too many statues. They had too many everything. Uh, and excess began to diminish its impact. That's one of the reasons for the iconoclasm of the early reformers, image breakers, the whitewashed churches, and uh, so forth. But here we have something where I think the Protestants went overboard. They turned against art entirely too much. And there still is an element in the Protestant community to regard artists as a competitor with the clergy. And I don't agree with that. I don't see that. Well, it wasn't the reformers. It was uh, Zwingli only and some Anabaptists, but Calvin and Luther did not have that position. That's true, but their followers very often fell into it. Well, it was two or three generations later, and it was under the influence of Zwingli. For example, uh, reading from uh, G.G. Colton, The Fate of Medieval Art and the Renaissance and Reformation, he writes... Uh, like Luther, he, Calvin, recognized it, art, as one of God's gifts. In his institution, which sums up his whole doctrine, and I'm not in error there, Colton calls it institution in his translation of it. He writes, and and he quotes, Yet am I not so scrupulous as to judge that no images should be endured or suffered, But seeing that the art of painting and carving images cometh from God, I require that the practice of art should be kept pure and lawful. Therefore, men should not paint nor carve anything but such as can be seen with the eye, so that God's majesty, which is too exalted for human sight, may not be corrupted by fantasies which have no true agreement therewith." Luther went a great deal farther, saying, I do not hold that the gospel should destroy all the arts, as certain superstitious folk believe. On the contrary, I would fain see all arts, and especially that of music, serving him who hath created them and given them unto us. The law of Moses forbade only the image of God, the crucifix, is not forbidden, unquote. He would have church walls painted with the creation. Noah building his ark, etc. He thought all lords ought to paint the walls of their mansions with Bible scenes, unquote. Now, while Calvin did not like depictions of God the Father and the Holy Ghost, he was against the destruction of anything Uh, that 
carried such a representation. I agree, but the fact remains that the Protestants turned against art and imagery to a very great extent. Yes, but they forsook their own fountainhead in so doing. Well, they did a lot of things that they shouldn't have. Yes. As we know, the Puritans went much farther than Calvin and much farther than Luther and much farther than almost everybody else in the Calvinist camp. And we did lose, I would say, speaking as a Calvinist today, we did lose the close contact with the arts that the Vatican retained. And to this day, we have a gulf between this camp and the arts. That's true, uh, and it's very unfortunate. There are a great many prominent uh, Reformed leaders right down through Kuiper to the beginning of this century that protested very strongly against that temperament. But among the uh, common people, the Zwinglian temper caught on. Remember that at one point when Knox first appeared in Edinburgh to give a speech, or give a sermon, I mm-hmm. should say, and the crowd ran out and ransacked all the churches. Mm-hmm. He didn't tell them to. No. Well, was there hostility to the old order which led to that kind of thing? And uh, Calvin spoke very sharply and uh, intensely against that sort of thing, and Luther lost his temper over that uh, uh, attitude. However, you must remember this, that uh, before the, the Reformation, periodically, angry peasants were ransacking churches and destroying images and uh, paintings and whatnot because of their hostility against the existing order. Against the tithes. Well, it was a part of a revolution. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things about a revolution is the attack against the imagery of the old regime. Yes. And against its symbols. That's why the business of burning the flag in the United States is so remarkable that the Supreme Court of the United States would go along with a revolutionary effort to destroy the symbols of this nation. Yes. Well, every excuse was used by the various states to do that. Uh, I know with the French Revolution, the Benedictine monasteries in Europe dropped from 1,500 to about 300 some. And even then, those 300 and some had most of their libraries and uh, ransacked and their properties taken from them by Catholic rulers. So it was not only in France, That's nor true. only under Henry VIII that That's monasteries true. were seized earlier. No, the French, the French royalty gutted the church yes. and looted the church. In fact, all the nobility of Europe couldn't restrain themselves from what they consider the treasures of the church. Now, we're seeing a replay of that in the United States. 
the only untaxed area of treasure left in this country belongs to the religious community, and the government is dripping with anxiety to get at it, to get at it in one way or another. The uh, every every governor, every congressman, every senator, every representative, all the departments of commerce and so forth keep there looking at that. They can't stand the fact that those collection plates are going in without a, uh, what is an electronic abacus mm -hmm. to keep track of it. Mm -hmm. Well, in uh, Christian Art, a book by C.R. Morey, M-O-R-E-Y, uh, published some years ago by Norton, 1935, he makes the point that one of the problems today, as in architecture he's dealing with specifically, we have a curious divorce of beauty from truth. Since they, the designers, recognize no inspiration higher than the human mind. So Maury, a scholar, an historian, feels that uh, this divorce has led to the degradation of art. And it is interesting, uh, at the same time, that uh, some curious things have happened uh, because from the perspective of taxes. Uh, well, let me read. This is from Margaret E. Stuckey, S-T-U-C-K-I, The Revolutionary Mission of Modern Art, or CRUD, and other essays on art. Uh, she is on our mailing list, by the way. Herein lies the tale of financial gain through indulgence as in Tetzel's time when buying an indulgence would get you more speedily to heaven, buying art today will get you income tax relief, which to some people must feel quite as much of a relief as getting out of purgatory. I didn't know that. Buying art can get you, uh, reduce your taxes? Yes, let me read on and she explains. I'm happy to hear this. Go ahead. In 1950, there's a catch. Oh, I'm sure. The American government and the British government passed laws giving tax relief to people who donated works of art to museums or schools. In England, in order to, dis to discourage the export of art, it became possible to pay death duties with works of art instead of money. Imagine what this would do to the art market. Also imagine, if you can, what gross malfeasance might tempt dealers and appraisers and auction houses and their advice to clients as to what to buy this year in order to donate to the public domain. It is my own belief that this ability to save money on income tax is the major prop in perpetuity of genuinely fraudulent works of art. Picasso is no great artist in my eyes, but the amount of revenue he has saved wealthy people is tremendous. 
works are appraised at fair market value or the going rate. This rate will keep on going as long as the owners of Picasso's, and they are legion, keep up the myth of his infallibility. As long as his doodles are deductible and his erotic drawings in easy supply, all the companions and cooperative corruption of culture will continue to praise Picasso. Which museum directors, director will admit his grandiose financial errors? Which millionaire will admit that his collection is worthless when he has saved thousands of dollars in taxes by donating it, while he still retains possession of it until his death, uh, donating it to his alma mater, who is too timid to renounce his gift for fear of losing his financial support, unquote. So, you see, there is, as uh, she explains here and elsewhere, there are gimmicks within gimmicks for the promotion of these works of art and to give you a tax break and to give you the honor of donating it and to have your name in the museum or on the university halls. Well, that's true, and I had forgotten about it until you brought it up. Recently, somebody wrote an analysis, uh, an analytical book, I should say, about Bernard Berenson, the famous uh, expert on uh, religious art of the Renaissance and later periods, who was tied in, as you know, with Lord Duveen, yes. the great art dealer. And there are some amusing stories about Duveen. One, which I have must repeat, is about his idea of selling Andrew Mellon an enormous at an enormous cost, a particular painting. And the cost was so high that even Devine had to give special thought to how he would ensnare Mellon. So he put this painting in a room by itself, and he surrounded it with other rooms, the first room with several paintings, and then on the other side, the third room with even more paintings. And he showed the first room with its collection of paintings in a sort of leisurely way to Mr. Mellon, then he rushed him past the room with only one painting in it and started to show him the paintings in the third room. And Mellon said, wait a minute, what about that painting back there? Oh, he said, you wouldn't be interested in that, so it's much too expensive. Mellon said, I want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, he sold it to him. Yeah. But the analysis of Berenson, who has been greatly praised, mm -hmm. was that he tailored his assessment and got a kickback yes and all the bidding which raises the prices of works of art higher and higher not only pays off to the buyer but everyone else who owns works by that particular artist will find the value of his is enhanced so that it's a good way of preserving a large estate by giving uh, some works of art that are worth uh, millions to a gallery, a federal gallery or a university gallery, and you preserve the rest of your estate. Well, we also have a very interesting paradox here, which first occurred or first appeared, so far as I know, in Rome. Grecian antiquities, 
were highly prized in Rome. And of course, there was a flourishing uh, black market where they were created yeah. and, and uh, faked for the Roman millionaires of the day. We have, however, a, a somewhat analogous situation where despite all the praise in the art publications for artists who are doing pretty much what a four-year-old kid might do if he was angry with the paints, despite all this, despite the reputation of the modern artist, the great sums are being spent for the art of the past. Mm-hmm. And religious art, art of the Renaissance, and art of the Impressionists, uh, Gauguin, and so forth, who is not really too good, no, very poor draftsman, uh, all looking backward, much as the Romans looked back at the Greeks, as though their what is present is really in their heart worthless. They really know this. Yes. You mentioned Gauguin. Very interesting uh, character. Uh, and yet uh, highly intelligent. I've read uh, more than a few things since my student days by and about Gauguin. And... Uh, this book I have right now is The Writings of a Savage, Paul Gauguin. Well, he's a sort of modern hero because he's a bourgeois that shucked all his responsibilities. Yes, abandoned his he wife. He abandoned his wife and kids. And well, that's a virtue nowadays. And, and uh, fell into the stews of Samoa. And uh, that's the kind of fellow that gets written up. And you see his counterpart in People magazine all the time. Mm-hmm. He wrote at one time, and this marked him, the turning point of the times in art, a mad search for individualism. If you've ever seen the uh, works of Gauguin before he went to the South Seas, when he was in Paris, you'd have to say, this man was good. But in the search for individualism, he abandoned everything and uh, hit upon uh, this approach. Of course, he was uh, very, very contemptuous of the people he idealized. He called them healthy animals, which uh, hardly was a term of respect. And uh, some of his language hardly would uh, pass muster with feminists today. Uh, this is what he writes, a period of work alone. I saw many young women with untroubled eyes. I guessed that they wanted to be taken wordlessly, brutally, a desire for rape, as it were. The old man said to me, speaking about one of them, Take this one. But I was timid and could not bring myself to do it. And so on. Uh, he also said, I am a great artist, and I know it. 
I'd like to say a little more about Gauguin because he came from uh, a well-to-do background. And uh, he writes, I became a day pupil in a boarding school in Orlando. The teacher said, this child will either be an idiot or a genius. I became neither the one nor the other. One day I came home with a few colored glass marbles. Furious, my mother asked me where I had gotten them. I lowered my head and said that I had exchanged them for my rubber ball. What, you, my son, engaging in trade? That word, trade, in my mother's mind was a, despic a despicable thing. Now, that is the kind of attitude that has, I'm afraid, formed a great many artists and uh, been very influential. Now, of course, Gauguin uh, outgrew this. He did say, by the way, to cite another thing, of himself of Van and Van Gogh, both of us are insane. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, they were, compared to what came later, really interesting men and artists. What came later, what we were exposed to, the Bauhaus, for instance, with Clay and the rest of them, the Bauhaus came over here and immediately was picked up by the New York establishment and it went like a knife through butter across the country. I was absolutely flabbergasted to see corporations buying the ghastliest things you've ever seen and hanging them up in corporate headquarters all across the country because this, they were told, was art. Now, what it really was was the destruction of form. And with the destruction of form, you have a destruction of meaning. Mm -hmm. When you have something that has no further, no limit. And art without form is a contradiction in terms. Yes. It's an assault against reason and against culture. What really was underway was an assault against the Christian culture of this country. Yes. And that has never really been brought out by the Christians or by the people who have attacked them. Yes. One of the things about uh, Gauguin that I respect is his honesty on that, that score because he said we must not only attack Christ's book but go higher up, further back in history, he said, to God. Uh, what must be killed so it will never be reborn. God. God must be killed. And he says this over and over again. His hatred of Christianity was intense. Well, not too long ago, if you recall, there was a, a book, I think you ran across it, I certainly did, where Picasso and some of the other artists in France outside the establishment hoping to break in to become a success to make money and of course 
your comment about trade. I don't know about trade, but I've never known artists that didn't want money. <laughs> uh, they don't work for love. No. Uh, Picasso and the others went to an exhibition in Paris of primitive art from Africa, yes. from dark Africa, from blackest Africa. And I will admit, because I've seen some of those uh, idols, that they are impressive. They don't, uh, they're foreign to us, but there is something about them which is quite impressive. In any event, that is what set off the whole business. Back not only to paganism, but back to primitivism. And it was a deliberate effort to get away from the Christian civilization altogether. It really is uh, hatred in the form of art. And it parallels our earlier observations on the films and on, on the movies. Mm-hmm. because this has gone through all the reaches of modern art. I mean, we cannot keep art restricted to painting. It's gone into uh, literature. We have books that have no chronology, where they, the uh, sequence is jumbled. Books without a plot. Yes. Well, that type of thing is a war against God because order is seen as associated with God. One of the things that I think we miss very much in our day is what Johann Sebastian Bach represented. He was marked by a pride in his family inheritance, although he was very poor. He came from a background of people who had been musicians who had served the church and he felt that it was a heritage to be proud of and to carry on and this in a book about Bach titled Johann Sebastian Bach by Willibald Gerlitt I'll quote Bach viewed his own life as a repetition of the existence of his ancestors. For that reason, mastery in his art appeared to him not so much as a gift, but as an assignment and a demand. He felt that he was confronted by something in which he was to achieve proficiency, to acquire expertness, and which he was to put into action. Occasionally he was asked what measures he had undertaken to reach so high a degree of skill in his art. He usually replied, I have had to be diligent. If anyone will be equally diligent, he will be able to accomplish just as much. He did not make much of, even as he did not depend on, his superior native endowments. End of quote. Well, that sort of thing has broken a lot of parts. Because people without talent can be very diligent. I think in the arts especially, I've seen people who were extremely diligent, extremely sincere, and who were never going to get anywhere. Yes, but you see, 
uh, what Bach was facing because he was antiquated and old-fashioned in his day was the emphasis which culminates in the kind of art we have today on uh, inspiration without discipline, without training. And he felt strongly that that was not uh, valid. It, he felt he had the aptitude, but it was diligence. It was I discipline. Understand, I understand the argument. Yes. I understand the argument. Mm-hmm. But God gives us different gifts. Oh, yes. And you have to apply them. You have to have diligence enough and discipline enough to apply them. People mistake their gifts, though, and especially in the arts. And perhaps it's because, as you indicate, that there's so much nonsense has been written about it. So much has been said about inspiration and the proper mood and this and that, that people go into the arts who really would be better served elsewhere. Yes, and sometimes those who go into it are destroyed by the schooling they have. About 25 years or so ago, I knew a very lovely young woman whose works were outstanding. And her husband appreciated her talents and put up the money for training in an art school, and it destroyed her. How so? Yes, because uh, she was a master of uh, realistic depiction and insight. Uh, There was a gripping, haunting quality to her work. But uh, they taught her to treat that with contempt and to go in for... non-realistic abstract 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 expressionist work and she was never able to regain her own talent they destroyed her well that's one of the perils of course Uh, in the arts everyone has of course their own vision and if they don't project that uh, they're not going to make it Uh, you just cannot uh, there's, there's, the only way you look at the world is the way God allows you to see the world. You cannot see the world through other people's eyes. Mm-hmm. You cannot think with other people's minds. You were given a mind and a pair of eyes and a heart in order to trust them. Mm-hmm. You just cannot allow schools or education to do that, but yes. you've opened up another gate. I mean, schools are doing that more than not. Uh, those of us who missed the school are actually lucky because the pressure of the professors and of the age and of the fashion is very heavy. What can a poor young person do? I think that is true in one field after another. I'm not saying across the boards because I don't know. No, we have good people too. Yes, but in the uh, world of the seminary, Now, I believe a good seminary could be established. But what we have today, whether it's the modernist seminary, the evangelical, or the reformed, is so bad that the students very often come out poorer preachers than when they went in. 
So it's not surprising that uh, today the churches that have grown phenomenally are the churches where the pastors are self-trained, often better read, uh, but uh, all the same, having had no seminary training, that's interesting. are more successful. That's interesting. That just carries us back to the Reformation. Yes, because it was the it was their training in the Renaissance that was sending people over the cliff. Mm -hmm. That was turning them into uh, believers in astrology and horoscopes and antiquity and everything except themselves. Then there's this factor. Uh, this comes from a book, Margaret R. Miles, who is a professor of historical theology at the Harvard Divinity School. Very, very much a modernist. A lot that I disagree with in her book, Image as Insight visual understanding in Western Christianity and secular culture. In spite of her basic outlook, which I cannot agree with, she is a woman of sound insights, and one of her statements, which she applies to herself and to anyone working in the arts, I think is a gem. She says, Authorship is moral responsibility. Tremendous That's statement. That's true. And I think it's one that needs to be... Uh, Very definitely uh, uh, ...promulgated today. Authors, artists, musicians need to be reminded. Authorship is moral responsibility. Well, look, culture is, is uh, expressed by its artists. Yes. If the artist turns against the culture, the people are absolutely defenseless. Yes. And the culture will be destroyed. This is what's happening to us. Mm -hmm. Our culture is being destroyed because the artists have turned against it. And one of the reasons the artists have turned against it is that I went back to the business that painters want money. They have to pay rent. They have like to buy homes like everybody else. The Christian community is no longer the patron of the arts. And therefore, the arts do not work for the Christian community. Mm -hmm. Now, it may sound crass because of this Victorian nonsense about art for art's sake, mm -hmm. but the fact of the matter is that art is a craft just as much as, as carpentering or plumbing. And uh, has to have it has to be compensated. The money that is poured upon the arts and upon the theater by the liberal left is enormous. Yes. Well, uh, the same applies in politics. Politicians do not support the Christian agenda because the Christians never contribute to their campaigns. Every other kind of group does, but Christians don't. But if they contributed and made known where they stand, you'd see a big change in all these uh, politicians. That's interesting, although I'm not sure about it. And the reason I say I'm not sure about it is that business has been 
gelded by the bureaucracy. At one time, business had a lot of influence and power in this country, but business today does not. Look at what happened to Exxon, and look at what's going to happen to Exxon. They're going to put them on criminal case, criminal trial for an accident, which if anything could prove the fact that business has lost political influence, that would make it. Yet business gives all kinds of money to politicians. But that's on a shakedown basis. What they are told, and I've been told this by bankers and businessmen, they are told by the reigning party in Congress that you give so much. Well, and if they don't have to be told in so many words, things are seldom that crude. They are they are aware yeah. of the fact that if they don't give anything, things aren't going to be good for them. The uh, and I'm afraid that the Christian community would also give its money to men who would say, "Now we don't give a damn what you think." Yes, I'm afraid so. Well, uh, one of the things to get back to Margaret R. Miles and her book that she calls attention to, she's dealing with early Christian art, uh, the earliest churches that were built and the artwork in them and uh, she makes this uh, statement and calls attention to what an art historian Emil Malle had to say that in these works and I quote the mood is consistently peaceful even in rare depictions of martyrdom as the art historian Emile Mallet expressed it. In those tragic years when the blood of the martyrs was flowing, Christian art expressed nothing but peace. The serenity of lines and colors uh, is not placid, however, nor are postures without inner tension. Now, that's a remarkable fact. That's the faith. Yes. Uh, Art at that time expressed the faith powerfully because it depicted the martyrdoms that they had been going through very recently and yet with a sense of serenity, a sense of peace and victory. That was not the end. Yes. Yes. So she calls attention throughout to the fact that the images in the church, that is, the paintings or anything else, depicted more than a physical reality, but a spiritual framework. They had a transcendental element. Uh, you know, life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is not its goal. Yes. It's Longfellow, and they, they, they laugh at it. But he meant it. Yes. And... Art without the spirit is not art. It's merely daubing. It's, it's, it's words on paper, formless. And I think it's very interesting that Tom Fleming, the editor of Chronicles, tells me that he has six or seven young poets who are submitting their poems to him in the classical form who cannot get published anywhere else. Just as the NEA grants 
are not given to realistic painters and they're not given to Christian composers. They're given to the Serrano who mm. puts the crucifix in his own urine or a Mapplethorpe with, yeah. a, with a writing crop up his anus. Yeah. This sort of thing is portrayed as the right of the artist to be creative without limits. Yes. Now, of course, we know underneath that argument there is another argument entirely, and that is we have a polytheistic country where all gods are recognized by the state as long as all the believers and all the gods obey the state. Yes. That's the Roman uh, system. There have been defenses of uh, Serrano and Mecklethorpe and others lately that make an amazing point. They identify what they call freedom, but really total license with art. Yes. And that is at the heart of a lot of this evil. Well, if yes. I'm free to do what I please, that's art. It's art so long as you only attack what is unfashionable in yes. the eyes of the government. Mm -hmm. Now, not every religious group can be attacked. Mm -hmm. Only the Christians can be yes. attacked, and the Muslims, and perhaps the Buddhists and the Hindus. Satanists aren't attacked. Mm -hmm. No. Well, One of the things that uh, Margaret uh, Miles also calls attention to is the tremendous shift the Reformation made from uh, the visual arts to the word, to the word, so that uh, we do not appreciate the enormous contribution that the uh, Reformation made in that sphere which has affected all of life. Uh, he uh, is quoted, or she quotes, Hugh of St. Victor. I do not wish to argue, as does Hugh of St. Victor, for a depreciation of words, a, quote, hierarchy of expressive media in which speech is secondary to knowledge acquired without words as intermediaries, unquote. Hughes' objection was to exclusive religious dependence on words and was based on changing definitions of the meaning of words as well as on the inevitable ambiguity of all words and their lack of competence to reveal the invisible world of religious meaning. As Rudolf uh, Verliner puts it, if words are not exempt from misunderstanding and need explanation, they have no basic advantage over pictures, unquote. Now, she gives a very uh, kindly interpretation, but uh, she is uh, right in calling attention to the fact that from a depreciation of words, we went with the Reformation to a vast appreciation of words because of the return to uh, the primacy of the Bible as God's revelation. Well, of course, the word still is here. Uh, 
And I always got a great deal of pleasure from Tom Wolfe's book, The Painted Word, Mm -hmm. in which modern art, uh, without the explanatory words, is absolutely without meaning. And uh, this sent all the New York art (laughs) people up in the flames. And they wrote an article about his Philistinism and so forth because he practically single-handedly demolished the mystique of modern art. They criticized even the way he dressed. (laughs) He made himself intolerable. (coughs) Well, our time is approaching its end. Are there any last words on the subject that you'd like to uh, offer, Otto? Well... Of course, I'm sorry that we didn't get to the formless literature paralleling the formless painting and the formless sculpture. I hate to say it, what the sculptures themselves call these modernistic uh, monstrosities that are set up in the rotunda and the patio and in front of buildings and so forth. Uh, they refer to these things in obscene terms because they themselves consider them an insult to the people. Yes. And they consider it a wonderful achievement to get the people to pay to be insulted. That's true. A few years ago, one artist actually uh, put his feces in sealed containers and sold them. And people gave him money. And people gave money. But the not novelty of it appealed to them. Not as much money as the government gives. Yes. The government gives a great deal of money now to the arts. Yes. And it's interesting that when Stalinist art and Hitlerian art and Mussolini's art was treated with contempt, American treasury art is supposed to be very good. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea of the subsidized artists in the United States is fine. It was only the fascist yeah. artist who was subsidized that was a contemptible creature. Yes. And we're getting even worse art with our uh, subsidy. Well, of course, I do not agree with the argument of the, some of the conservatives that Serrano and Mapplethorpe and their ilk have a perfect right to produce that sort of thing in the private marketplace. I don't think they have any right to do that. I don't think they have any right to be blasphemous or obscene. Uh, I don't think that people have a right to issue anti-Semitic diatribes. I don't think that any group in this country should be treated as contemptible. I agree fully. And I think civilization rests on that kind of uh, perspective a civilized a godly discourse and respect for every uh, particular group well our time is up thank you all for listening and God bless you authorized by the Calcedon Foundation archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library digitized by Christ Rules dot com